Sure. I take care of a woman whose history dates back to early 2004, when she was 41 years old. At that point, she was Gravita 3, Para 3, with a history of childhood right nephrectomy, which will come into play a little later. She noticed some ill-defined fullness in her left breast in March 2004. She underwent evaluation with mammography and ultrasonography, which were reported as negative, with the suggestion that she would follow up in a year with repeat studies. Six months later, in September 2004, she developed some pain in her left breast in a palpable lump. She was referred to and seen by a surgeon who performed several core needle biopsies with all samples coming back containing carcinoma with papillary features along with a dense infiltration of tumor emboli within the lymphatics and vessels. The tumor was estrogen and progesterone receptor negative and HER2 new negative. Her extensive disease workup at that point revealed a negative bone scan and negative body CTs. And her CAT scans were really remarkable just for a mass in the left breast and a surgically absent kidney. Did you say how big it was? On physical examination, she had a movable 8-centimeter mass in the upper outer quadrant of the left breast with numerous matted axillary lymph nodes measuring up to 1.5 centimeters. I think that's where we wanted to present her, right? Right. And can you talk a little bit more about the woman, what her state of mind was, and what her social support was? She has a phenomenally involved and supportive husband. He has his own business, an elevator company, and he actually has about 80 people working for him, which he built himself. He didn't inherit it or anything like that. Although she's a housewife, she also was involved or is involved with her husband's company. She does the books and some of the administrative things for it. She has three daughters. I've already said she was gravity three, para three. How old are her daughters? Her daughters are tough years, 13, 14, and 16. So they're all junior high school, high school. And they've dealt with her mom's illness in different ways. Obviously, they're all in school, and some are very involved with their mom's care and state of health. They speak with her about it. They actually do things like give her massages, where another one of the children really, I can't say withdrew, but doesn't really volunteer a lot of input, doesn't ask a lot of questions. And actually, you might want to pursue that because I'm interested about how you all deal with patients with children in this age group. And the whole story gets a lot more complicated. But I actually just want to stop right there and ask you and start with Sandy. And of course, I'd like to have you talk about the study that you did with lovely advanced breast cancer with bevacizumab, but how you would think through the therapy of this woman with a locally advanced triple negative tumor. Well, I think that she's 41, and you didn't mention any other family history. Does she have any other family history? Because there's data now suggesting that these may be more BRCA positive. Does she have family history? No, she's Not the only all. member of her family with breast cancer. Now, is that more with triple negative or just breast cancer in general? Well, with a triple negative. So I think the way I would approach her, and there are studies that are looking at triple negatives and looking at... EGFR inhibitors, and if there's not a study available, we can talk about what the standard treatment would be, but there is a study, at least U.S. Oncology is doing one study, I think it's with Carbo and Arena Tican and Herbitux, I think is the design, and then I know that Dr. Rugo's group is going to do one with Carboplatin and Herbitux because there's some suggestion that there's an increased EGFR expression in these patients that have the triple negative tumors. Have responses actually been seen to Herbitux or any similar agent? I really don't think so yet. I think they're just trying it. In the past, and I did a study with Erlotinib, a lot of people have looked at Erlotinib or Gefitinib, the 
response is almost zero. They're tyrosine kinase inhibitors, so they act differently than Herbitux, which is a monoclonal antibody, so it may be more active, and especially if you actually do have the target, which we're not even sure, and I know you all know the lung cancer data, what is the target for these anti-EGFR therapies, but we don't need to go there now. So if you are unable to put her on one of these clinical trials, I would choose to just treat her with standard chemotherapy and really would be whatever your choice is, TAC chemotherapy, AC followed by paclitaxel, AC followed by docetaxel, any of those I think would be fine. I think that the pathologic complete response rate should be pretty good in a patient like this, maybe up to 30%. We've seen that the patients who have ERPR positive tumors have a lower pathologic complete response rate, more in the 5 or 6% range. So I think it would be reasonable to do that first. And Neil asked a question about my study with bevacizumab. We did a study in inflammatory and locally advanced breast cancer using adriamycin and docetaxel along with bevacizumab. And in that study, we had a very high response rate. It was 67% was neoadjuvant. However, we only had one patient that had a pathologic complete response, and this was inflammatory breast cancer. And there's really not much other data right now using bevacizumab in the neoadjuvant setting, so I wouldn't choose to use that in this patient off trial. The other issues with bevacizumab in the neoadjuvant setting, which you need to be careful about, are the wound healing issues. And we had five out of 13 patients who had mastectomy actually had wound healing problems incisional separation or seroma. And again, inflammatory breast cancer is much more difficult, so it may be because they had more predilection for this. And in those patients, what was the interval from the BEV to the surgery? It was about four weeks in most patients. So that's a little bit shorter than what we think right now, I guess, six or eight? Right now, the way we're designing the trials, we're doing a neoadjuvant trial in the NSABP, and we're dropping out bevacizumab the last two cycles before surgery because of the long half-life. What will the interval be between the last bevnose and surgery? It'll be about six weeks. And can you comment on that study? Because to me, that's like a landmark study that's really leading the way into the future, B40. B40 has been in design for about seven or eight years. And Harry Bear, believe it or not, that is his name. Harry Bear is the surgeon who is the PI and has really stood up there at every NSABP meeting. And we've had many different designs. The most recent and what is going to actually happen, and this study will be opening very soon, it's a neoadjuvant study and patients will get either docetaxel or docetaxel zolota or docetaxel gemcitabine, all of those followed by AC, and then surgery after that. And they will be randomized to bevacizumab or not, and then receive bevacizumab after their local therapy, their surgery, and with their radiation. One of the major goals of this study is really to look at the tissue. And soon, Peg, as you know, has really been a pioneer in doing a lot of these marker studies. And one of the things he worked with was the recurrence score. But he plans to do microarrays on all of these tissues that will be obtained prior to getting any kind of treatment. And I think it's really going to help us try to determine prediction of which drugs will help the patients, including bevacizumab. So that will, as I said, it'll be open in November. One final point before I ask Kai how he would manage this lady, because you said you wouldn't consider Bev off study. If this lady then, same lady, presents with metastatic disease, never had chemotherapy, what would you likely utilize? 
with metastatic disease, yeah, with triple, triple negative, negative. Same woman, except instead of locally advanced, right. she has metastatic disease. I would treat her with either paclitaxel, carboplatin, or paclitaxel alone with bevacizumab because so, of the increased time to progression and the E2100 study. So just to be an agent provocateur, which is my role here, then why wouldn't you treat her now with that? Because there's really no evidence that it's going to help her in a setting where you're quote unquote, potentially think she's curable. I mean, you could do it. I just Matted don't. Matted axillary nodes, eight yeah, centimeter. The likelihood is low that she's going to be curable. Just wondering. But it's a different endpoint that you're going for there. You don't have metastatic disease yet. The goal of treating metastatic disease is to decrease symptoms, prevent disease from occurring in that situation where they already have disease. So I wouldn't do it. Hi. Okay. How would you approach therapy this woman today? I kind of would follow Sandy's approach. I would treat her with conventional chemotherapy. You know, if you really look, we call them triple negatives now, but we've been treating ERPR negative patients for 25 years. We didn't know their HER2 status, but we have to assume that about 80% are triple negatives because 20% of the population are HER2 positive. So if you look at these beautiful analyses like CLGB, Don Berry, and you trace fact therapy to dose dense, you see these tremendous benefits in the ERPR negative patients. So they are triple negative for the most part, and they don't have trastuzumab, and they're doing very well. So I think that's different than the biology if you don't treat them. It's like we cure intermediate and high-grade lymphoma with CHOP, but we don't cure low-grade lymphoma. And I suspect what we're seeing is a lot of these less aggressive tumors that are ER positive for the low-grade lymphomas, and they recur 15 years out. They're slow, but they're harder to get rid of totally because the cells are just not dividing as quickly for whatever. I think that's what we'll see. So that being said, I think any of the regimens, neoadjuvant therapy would be reasonable here. I don't have vast experience with bevacizumab, but maybe the results of the trial you presented would talk me out of it in the neoadjuvant setting because the PCR rates are much higher for these receptor-negative, higher-risk tumors, I think, because they get a just much better response to chemotherapy because they're highly proliferative, aggressive tumors. So I would do that. I think if she had METs, then I probably, after seeing the paclitaxel bevacizumab data, would pick that for someone like this. Because they're really not the best, as some of the presenters have said, best time to progression results, but in a big randomized trial, they're among some of the most impressive results. And the toxicity of the bevacizumab, although we're concerned about hypertension and wound healing, it's much less than most of the other chemotherapy agents we would put in, in addition to paclitaxel. Dr. Weintraub? I think where we are with bevacizumab is where we were about three years ago with Herceptin. When a patient had a very large tumor, we were giving them a taxane Herceptin up front. MD Anderson indeed did that as well, or Taxotiravastin, because these women are going to die. This lady has a very large tumor. She has matted nodes. Why not do with Avastin now what we did with Herceptin then? And we know now we were right. Let's actually find out what happened with this patient. Can you bring us up to date? Sure. A lot has happened since then. First of all, I want to remind everyone, this is two years ago before we had much of Aston data in breast cancer. What if it weren't? Would you personally have given her Would you do it now? I would consider it now. I'm not sure that I'm prepared to commit to it. Probably. I mean, knowing what happens over the next two years, I probably would. Well, we know she's going to have a recurrence, so whatever you did. I went with the neoadjuvant approach, and I used dose-dense AC followed by Taxol. 
And she appeared to have a fairly good shrinkage to the initial part of the regimen with the adriamycin and cytoxin, and a little less dramatic with the taxol. In January 2005, she underwent a left-modified radical mastectomy, revealing no evidence of residual stromal tumor. However, the lymphatics were extensively involved with tumor emboli. Six out of the 23 sampled axillary lymph nodes were involved with metastatic cancer. There's no evidence of extracapsular extension. Largest lymph node was 1.7 centimeters with 10% tumor involvement. Again, we looked at the ERPR and HER2 new, which were all negative. With that extent of local disease, I referred her for radiation therapy, despite having a mastectomy. And what I did was, knowing, again, that she's at high risk for recurrence, I added capsidabine Monday through Friday and Saturdays and Sundays off. And that was administered through the whole course of the chest wall radiation therapy and the axillary radiation as well. At approximately the time of the completion of the radiation therapy, additional subcutaneous nodules were noted along the chest wall just outside the radiation field. She developed additional additive radiation field recurrences and was under the care of the radiation oncologist who touted ongoing radiation therapy, which she received. She was rebiopsied after several recurrences. And I went back, and knowing that she had a good initial response to the anthracycline and the data coming out of metronomics, I used doxel with Avastin and trying to minimize the amount of skin disease, chest wall disease. She had no evidence of visceral disease through just about all these recurrences. She eventually, with the one kidney, developed a very acute onset of renal insufficiency, came to me tasting a metallic taste, feeling a bit bloated, and I sent out a stat chem screen, and it came back with a creatinine of 9. turned out that she had ureteral obstruction with her unilateral kidney. I admitted her, she had a stent placed, and her kidney function returned, and I switched her over to gemcitabine and avastin. This was tumor compressing the ureter? It's unclear. It appears to be extrinsic compression. There doesn't appear to be any ureteral luminal obstruction. How did she do on the avastin doxel? Well, she developed the ureteral so obstruction. So she didn't respond, or she wasn't on it long enough? How she long was she on it? She didn't appear to respond. She was on it for several months. Her skin was not getting any better? Her skin clearly improved, but again, she was getting radiation therapy through a good part of this earlier. She made it clear that she wanted to be treated with a regimen that she wouldn't lose her hair. She had three relatively young daughters, and it was important that if two drugs were perhaps equally therapeutically effective or close to being therapeutically effective, she would want to go with the one that gave her her hair, wouldn't cause alopecia, and kept her home life as normal as possible. And it seemed very, very reasonable. That's where she is now. So, Sandy, what about, you know, in colon, we have this big debate about lung now. What agents can you combine with pevacizumab? How much data do you need to see? These are kind of interesting choices. What are your thoughts about chemo plus Avastin in terms of choice of chemo? Well, I think it probably doesn't matter. I don't see that there's really any great synergy data as there was with the Herceptin data and the chemotherapy. So I think the choice of agent probably doesn't matter. I think that since she received the Avastin initially with Doxel and really didn't have much of a response, in fact, progressed, I would stop it at that point. I think it isn't non-toxic, especially as patients get sicker it can cause thromboembolic or at least arterial embolic disease and hypertension, and you can have problems with wound healing. She has a nephrostomy. Hopefully there won't be any issues with that there. And the greatest issue for not 
continuing the Avastin, it looks like it's just not effective, and it is very expensive. So I probably would have not chosen to continue that, but just to switch her to another chemotherapy. Hi, we have the Bevacizumab Purist and Non-Purist. Some people only use it first line with Paclitaxel. Other people use it second, third, fourth line with different agents. Where do you fit in? So I think we have the data using it with capecitabine, a second line, a randomized trial, which did have a higher response rate, but not an improved time to progression or overall survival. So I think like Herceptin, you know, to use it, to try it once again is not unreasonable. But I think by the time I get to third and fourth regimens, just like Herceptin, although most of us are afraid to stop it because the patient is so marketed to the drug that we leave them on and we've never been able to pull off a trial. But I suspect by the time you're doing your third, it doesn't matter anymore. And to try to take the patient off it. I also would you know, think you only gave a very short course of capecitabine. When you gave it during radiation, and perhaps it is a potentiator, people are looking at that. But I would say you still got it as an option. So if she progressed again on the gemcitabine and doesn't want to lose her hair, and I would try it as a single agent. Perhaps at this point, to me, that would be something to think of. You don't have any great options here. And you got stuff you can look at every day. You don't need to get scans and CA27. You know, you just look at the skin. And if it's not working, you can bail out and try something else. Just a final comment from Dr. Farber. Any thoughts about dealing with her teenage daughters and where you see that heading? Yeah, that's, you know, an area of great concern to me. I mean, I've asked them what they've told their children. I have two daughters myself that are in the same age group. And what they've explained to their kids is that they've told them that mom has cancer, she's fighting, but they haven't said that she's terminal per se. They seem to be doing very well. I mean, one has immersed herself in athletics and is doing very well. She hadn't done much in the way of sports before, and she made the team and is successful and won in academics. And then the oldest, coincidentally, has her best friend, whose father was diagnosed recently, a relatively young man, with pancreatic cancer. So I think that they're getting a lot of solace from one another in terms of their parents' illnesses. Have you talked to them about what their plans are when things aren't working anymore? I mean, do you know what their thoughts are, her living will, what she wants done, where she wants to die, and things like that? No, I haven't. And it's funny, I think the process sort of takes care of itself at the point that she starts getting very weak. I mean, in the meantime, she's still spending some time at her husband's business and able to go about her activities of daily living. Perhaps that's the time that these things should be addressed. We've had a few cases here presented where people precipitously went downhill, were in comas and ICUs and didn't have living wills, and it was not a good situation. Well, that's why for me personally, I usually discuss it very early on when the patient's feeling well. And I say, as all of us should think about this because anything could happen. So I really try to get in the door so I know early on how they feel about things and so we can talk about it so it doesn't have to be abrupt because I've had to do that too. And that's not fun to really have to abruptly talk to someone about dying the next couple of days. Alan? Just say I happen to have a manuscript out to a journal that sort of addresses this issue. We did a prospective study looking at discussion about advanced care directives, comparing patients with advanced cancer, would having to be lung and GI, to patients with ALS. The patients with ALS had a better prognosis than the cancer patients. They lived far longer, but there was far greater discussion about advanced care directives with the ALS patients. So 
for some reason, I think we all probably know why, we tend to put off these discussions with cancer patients and it leads to just the sorts of problems you're mentioning. I want to go on to Dr. Henningsen's case. 